This is Island Waves. You're listening to Something to Talk About, a series on everyday people and giving them a voice into their lives. Island Waves, the voice of Prince Edward. This is Island Waves, and you're listening to Something to Talk About. Today's guest, Joel Shiver. We're here today with Joel Shiver, whose origins start in Camilla, Georgia, and take him all the way up to Athens, Georgia, to American Samoa at one point in time. How are you doing today, Joel? I'm well, thank you. So let's start at the beginning. Joel, is it Joel Norman Shiver? It is. Why do I remember that? You know the story there, but we shan't go to that. But I do remember a very important day on September 10th in 1983. Oh, yeah. I was on the air at WNGC, and you were having your first son. That's right. Yes. Yes. Who's gone on to do great things, and we'll get around to talking about the kids in a little bit. Tell me about Joel Norman Shiver growing up, and is it Camilla, Georgia? Was I correct? You're correct. Okay. So... They say the memory's the first to go, not here. That's from doing the jumble. I'm impressed. And reading the news. Okay, so tell us about uh, being raised in Camilla, Georgia. Well, Camilla is deep down in southwest Georgia. It's a largely agricultural area. Anyway, I I just couldn't stay. uh, After I graduated high school, I just cut out to make a long story short, you know, I went away to college at Valdosta. You did go Valdosta State? So what did your parents do? My daddy was a car salesman, and my mama started out working in a sewing factory. She was making a sewing shirt, but then she uh, got a job at the credit bureau and wound up owning the credit bureau. That's a fascinating uh, rise to accomplishment. It is. Especially for women during that era. Absolutely. We were born into a really great time, and we we won't discuss what that year was or our age, but I feel like we came through a, a corridor of opportunities. We absolutely did. I My heart goes out to, for example, my grandchildren. If you got two children, and one is high school, and one is in the first grade, those two children from your family will each have almost totally different experiences growing up. Things change so fast nowadays. We just, we're like in hyperdrive. We are. and uh, But even back then in the 80s, I think there was a big difference between when our boys were born and when our daughters were born. The same generation. And, yeah, so, and, right. For my youngest yeah. one in 89, it is almost like a different generation. It is. Yes. My uh, son was born in 1983, my daughter, 88. Almost parallel with mine. So going back well, to... just one of the few things we have in common. You know? <laughs> one of the many. Co- going back, circling back to Camilla. So your parents were both working people. What type of uh, neighborhood did you grow up in? Was it rural? Was it urban? Is there an urban uh, in Camilla? We lived in town. The population was about 5,000. But, you know, right out of town, you were in farming country. We lived in town in a, in a white neighborhood. Well, it was then, predominantly that way back in that era. It wasn't just predominantly. It was 100% that way. I was being kind. I know you were, but I'm not going to be kind. Well, I, know, I've, learned a little, about, I've learned a little bit about being a sweet Georgia belle and, uh, and the finer traits of being a polite Canadian. Well, you know, my parents, my father was a sharecropper when I was born. What does that mean? He was raised in the country, about seven people, and his daddy died when he was about 18. He was the third child, and he was left then with the responsibility of being the man of the house. Now, I had a wonderful God-fearing grandmother, and my daddy was a devout Southern Baptist. And everything you imagine that is, is what he was. He was strict. He didn't drink, but he did smoke. 
Outside by but the woodshed, of course. I don't know when he started smoking, but I mean, he smoked all my life. I remember one time in our house, there were about six or seven of us all smoking at the same time. And I can't, I look back on that and I can't imagine what that really must have been like. But that's the way it was but, at that time. Yeah. Anyway, he was very strict. I was raised Southern Baptist. I, uh, you know, there were times where I didn't miss church in a whole year. So I got to know the Bible pretty good. You know, I noticed the discrepancy of what they taught with the racism they practiced. Was it peppered and, and subtle, or was it pretty blatant? It was blatant, overt. There were two two black men there that, to this day, are shining examples to me. Uh, they were both well-respected. My sister was a, ran a dialysis clinic, and one of her nurses was his daughter. But one was a uh, handyman, you know, just about anything he needed. He was he was big, tall, and uh, carried himself with dignity. And the other one was a bricklayer, and he was the most sought-after brick mason in that area. So those two dignified black men, I, always, I was always in awe of them, how they could maintain their dignity in the face of the overt racism uh, that permeates the town. It's still, it's still that way. I, you know, I don't like to go back there very often. My sister and brother both still live there. If I go down there and I have a conversation with anybody who lives there, apart from my brother and sister, but this does apply somewhat to my brother and sister. You're not five minutes into the conversation before the race becomes a subject. To this day? And, in this day huh? and age? What? Right now? In this day and age? Yes, right now. Right now. And so, you know, I left. I left in 74, went to Valdosta, got my degree in theater arts. And I worked all through college. As a matter of fact, I started working in the parts department of the Chevrolet dealership in Camilla when I was in the ninth grade. I worked there all through high school. And as a senior in high school, I was the afternoon book for the dealership. You know, I always made good grades. I was responsible and reliable and smart. And they put me in there. I was I was writing my daddy's paycheck. Did he have aspirations anyway. that you would go into the business too, into that no. line of work? No, uh, but I'll tell you, I really enjoyed it. Now, when I went to Valdosta, I got a part-time job in a PA auto parts store. You know, I love, I love the parts business and I love mechanics. I still, to this day, have a great deal of respect for them. Now, if you own a hood, the hood of a car right now, I couldn't tell you what's worth. I don't know that. Well, things are it's different. Nothing like it was back then. No, no, way. no not at no, all. Now you need a computer no. and Google it online oh, yeah. to find out. And that's what the mechanics do. And um, know how to work it. You and know, they know, know how, how to how work to... it. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Which uh, involves a level of training that, uh, you know, didn't exist back then. It did not. Do you know it's a challenge now to not not check your oil, but to find a dipstick in your car because everything comes through. <laughs> no, it's true. It's not that you can't find it. I actually have a dipstick, but it's a it's a faux dipstick. It, and I asked, "Well, how do I check the oil?" And they said, "The car will tell you." Okay. Not oh, not not real goodness. comforting when you're taking a road trip. Well, you're having to rely on a machine. You've lost some autonomy there. AI? Huh? I said, like AI? Like, will it tell me, you know, oh, that yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I need to leave my husband or something? <laughs> Crazy what's going on, huh? Almost like watching yeah, a movie. Over our lives, we've become so more, much more reliable on machines. And that trend... I don't see an end to it. You know, it's going to be even getting even more sophisticated. You know what AI is doing nowadays, for example, this virtual, these writing program that can write you a speech. You know, you feed it a few ideas and it'll come up with a confident presentation about uh, what you want to talk about. That's that's amazing. It is I mean, amazing. It, and it's, fr it's I find scary. it frightening. Yes, absolutely. I'll tell you something else, too. These programs that can put mouth movements and head movement onto uh, characters. What that effectively does is makes you be able to put words in somebody's mouth credibly. So imagine all the opportunities for the misuse of that. 
there's going to have to be some serious regulation done, and it won't be easy to arrive at it. Joel, I think it's a classic case of the barn doors open and the horses are out. Yep, I, I don't know they can dial this back. I don't, I don't, no. I don't really see that, or maybe oh, not no, in our foreseeable future. What, no, it's not. The only way it's going to happen is for global mass destruction. A global you know, mass what? Destruction. You know, um, just wipe the slate clean, like you know George Carlin said. We don't need to preserve the earth. The earth is going to take care of itself. We need to take care of the humans. <laughs> To he take did care say of that, but you don't find that because, frightening, especially having you know two generations, you know, beyond yourself, your children and your grandchildren. I, I, oh, I do. I find it's it a, both frightening and 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 I get angry at it. I thought we left that behind. I thought all those things that we championed uh, causes for all our lives. I thought we would be handing over a better world, a safer world, and a more peaceful world. Yeah. But we're not. Especially in the last uh, decade or decade and a half, at least, we've really, really fallen in our our moral compasses got really out of whack. It's getting more out of whack every day. And uh, that's of concern. You mentioned our, you know, generations like my first grandson will turn 80 in the year 2100. Now, what in the world will his life be like? between now and then. Optimistically speaking, that there will be a life. Yes. If we're heading down that primrose path that you talked about to self-destruction and and doom, then, yeah, yeah, there'll be survivors, but what are we surviving? Notice I I said we, but for those that do survive, what what are they going to inherit? Exactly. Now, you know, it's it's always concerned me. Hate begets hate. Progression of uh, populating Georgia was, of course, we got Oglethorpe who came into Savannah, but we had all these people on the other side of the uh, Savannah River, the other side of Savannah River, and they were literally across the river into Georgia at that land between the Savannah River and uh, the Oconee River. And they said that would be a good place to live. So then they started populating that and running the natives out. Then they were going to establish that. They were looking over the Oconee to the Okmulgee River, saying the same thing, same result. You know, this is the way the Native Americans were pushed out of the land. And uh, then when they got to the Okmulgee River, they were looking across the Flint River and seeing that land. And then when they got to the Flint River, they were looking across at the Chattahoochee River. And that's how Alabama got started. Andrew Jackson was sent down. This was before we became president to deal with the problems that that created with the Native Americans. You know, how he dealt with them was just abominable ports. So I've always had a big problem about people who go around preaching love, one another, Christ issues, and acting like that, you know, with total disregard to the humanity of you know, the people around us. And sadly, so anyway, and so. sadly it's almost uh, very similar today. Well, it is very similar And not today. just specific okay. to Georgia. I mean, it just seems like there's this global level of animus and hatred and bitter spirits. Yes. I mean, and there's no better example of that than the evangelical Christian movement in the United States. They have totally turned their back on Jesus' teachings. Can we start with the gold calf at the CPAC meeting? Oh, I, you know what? I watched a little bit of that, and I had to turn it off. I could not it's, bear to listen. It's repugnant. It's pretty, pretty, pretty straightforward, you know. Is what what Christ's teachings demand, and another one is love one another. Love one another. Love thy neighbor as thyself. So first well, you have to start cool. with loving yourself. And, that's and exactly right. I think when you have <laughs> that kind of anger and vitriol that you can spew, you're not loving yourself. So right there at the get-go, it, you're, you're coming out the gate with, with not adhering to what you're, what's coming out of your mouth. The thing with me is I grew up in that kind of compelling culture. You know, my daddy was real strict. And, uh, you know, he had us, I mean, he was a Sunday school teacher and uh, he had a jail prison, a prison 
visitation pass so he could go spread the word to the enemy. I just realized what you said. You were raised, what, what's your ethnic background? Scotch? I think the word shiver, and I don't, you know, I have no idea whether or not this is true or not, uh, comes from the keeper of the shire, like a sheeper, like, you know, and the best I can tell, my ancestors came from England into North Carolina, and it spread west from there. But there is another group of Shivers. Shivers is not, Shiver is not that common of name, but there's another lineage of Shivers. One, uh, for example, is there's a doctor here in Athens with the last name Shiver. And there's a uh, handwriting expert in Atlanta who's a Shiver. And I think, uh, well, I know I've, I've had this discussion with a handwriting expert, you know. You know, we have two totally different lineages. So that's interesting because, you know, I grew up kind of thinking that everybody named Shiver was, you know. Related? Uh, yeah, yeah. At some point in our ancestry. And, and probably that is true, but... Well, I'm sure somewhere down the line, the two lines converged. Way, 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 way back. Right. back. Yeah, yeah. Going back to where you were raised in Camilla, you said you catapulted out of Camilla. I guess you went through the public school system there, correct? Yeah. You know, it was segregated. I mean, Brown versus Board of Education was in 1954. Nevertheless, a lot of most schools in the South remain segregated until around the year 1970, 71. 70 to 71 was the first year of complete integration. Now, before that, we had about three black people tending my high school. And, you know, they were very fine people. One of them, in fact, turned out to be a doctor. I don't know about the others, but nevertheless, you know, hats off to them for immersing themselves in this totally alien culture. 7071 was the first year of complete integration in the public schools. Right. You know, this separate but equal bullcrap came out of the United States Supreme Court case, turn of century, that said separate but equal is. Okay. Well, of course it's not, you know. We had better textbooks, we had better school buildings and all that kind of stuff. White people did. You know, it's just people are perfectly willing to live with fallacies, like roots growing through their brain, you know, all these fallacies, and they accept them as the way life really is. Gospel but, truth. Well, that's a good word because, you know, that's what Jesus was trying to do 2,000 years ago was to persuade them there's a better way. And there was, you know, I played piano. I played piano in my Sunday school class. And uh, there was one song that I really love because it had these lyrics. Things that are higher, things that are nobler, these have allured my sight. And we'll be back with more of Something to Talk About here on Island Waves, the voice of Prince Edward Island. Island Waves. Something to Talk About is a series on everyday people and giving a voice into their lives. This series is dedicated to James David Withers, friend, mentor, author, and poet and also to Shirley Eckhard, composer of our theme song, singer-songwriter, and namesake of our program, Something to Talk About. And we're back with our guest, Joel Shiver, on Something to Talk About. Let's circle back around to Camilla. So you catapulted out of Camilla after high school, went to Valdosta State, and I'll just uh, chime in by saying I just interviewed a fella that did the same thing, only he came by way of Brooklyn, I believe it was, to Valdosta State for the theater department. Perhaps you might have crossed paths with him. His name was Glenn Hilke, but he would have been there around the same time you did. Other than that, I was surprised Valdosta State had a theater department and apparently run very well. Well, my degree is, and I am so proud of my degree, I have a BFA in theater arts from Valdosta. My emphasis was television and radio. And there was another guy down there at the same time I was that I never knew him, but he's gone on to have quite a successful career in film. He played the coach in the movie The Blind Side, and he also played a guy in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? 
the scene was in a grocery store. That whole movie may be one of my, my favorite movies of all time. I am a huge movie, uh, fan favorite. of the Coen Brothers. Uh, every movie that I'm they've I'm telling watched. you right now. My first Coen Brothers experience that I was aware of, I think I probably saw Hudsucker Proxy before that. But uh, to me, with the Coen Brothers, you have to watch it the first time and then listen to it and observe it the second time. And then you fall in oh. love with, with their work. It's uh, I find them, they're my favorite. They just have this talent for a subtle shifting of perspective, you know. And like you said, you know, may not catch it the first time, but then the second time you can see what they're doing. But that's just what their—that's what their talent is, it you is. know. Anyway, Oh Brother, Well, that was the only movie I've ever watched twice in a theater. And of course, I had the soundtrack playing on my computer at work all the time. So every time I talked to a prosecutor, he'd note that the fact that. <laughs> That soundtrack was playing. It is. I mean, Cohen Brothers was just absolutely brilliant. You know, and that's a term that's overused a lot of times, but it flies to them in my mind. So going but, back to Valdosta State, you graduated okay. and went on from Valdosta State. How did you get up the I-85 corridor? Graduate school at EGA. That's not when you went to law school. That was graduate school. That was graduate school. Yeah. Uh, came in 78. August 1st. And what were you pursuing in graduate school? It was a journalism degree. My idea was to be a public television producer or producer of kinds of programs that would air on public television. That's the Grady School of Journalism, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yes. And the home, what is the award they give out there? It's not the Peabody. The Peabody. I was going to say Peacock, but that didn't sound right. Peabody's, right. Home of the Peabody. Yep. It's really, really, really a prestigious award, you know. I think, the, I think the Grady Journal School of Journalism is probably one of the finest in the country. Yes, I believe I believe it's recognized as such. Northwestern's another one, I think. But, but I didn't finish. I left 15 hours and a thesis short my master's. Somehow I just got to a point in my life. You know, when I worked my way through auto parts when I was an undergrad, and there at the end, I got a job in Kmart at the camera department, and I ran that camera department. Hanging around before I graduated, I was contemplating pursuing a second degree. But anyway, I decided that I'm not need to stop that, and that's why I applied to graduate school Georgia left 15 hours in a thesis short because it was just one of those, kind, those kinds of time in my life. That's when I started on the radio. Well, I think you get to a point in pursuit of education where something taps you on the shoulder and says it's time to get out of the classroom and start earning some money and uh, or get into your profession or maybe you just get to the point of where you feel totally absorbed with what you know and it's time to take the next step forward is that when you went to yeah. broadcasting more or less yes and uh candidly in my opinion the the faculty at georgia was just uninspiring i don't know what i've always pursued interests like that with a different perspective from most of my fellow students. You know, it's the same way as a lawyer, you know. I don't do I don't I did civil rights in federal court a couple of years. And that was pretty intense and exciting. But what I really wanted to do was be a public defender because the legal aid program in Athens it was associated with the UGA law school. It was a clinical program that you could sign up to take as a class. You get class credits for going over there and being over there at the office and learning how the various permutations of a case developing. So it was you an know, experiential uh, learning. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Because my first year, and I, and I always remarked about this, my first year, I didn't know what Sam Hill was going on. You know, how did these people know where this case was likely to go, you know? And so I know I walked around with my mouth gaping open, confused. And when I, when I, and when I got a job there, after I became a lawyer, because that's what I really wanted to do. My experiences were that first year, you, you can take it, start taking it when you're a, a second year uh, law student. So their first year at the clinic, they also went around with their mouths gaping open, having, you know, 
no idea how everything sorted out. And then when they come back their third year law school and they've learned it all and they come in there with, with a cocky attitude. Now, I'm overstating that. No, what, but, you come in wide-eyed and doe-eyed and then you leave seasoned and maybe have courage of your own conviction. Well, confidence. Yes, yes. Come back with confidence. Yes. But let's get, uh, we skipped over, uh, and if you don't mind, we talk about when you got out of, you were in the master's program at UGA, and mm-hmm. you left, you know, 15 hours shy and a thesis. So how did you make the transition over to, to radio? Well, when I was at VSC, I was one of many students who were on the board, I mean, the board in radio terms, the control, you know, on the mic. I know what a board uh, is. Uh, today's um, I know, but today's a lot journal of <laughs> right. Today's journalists, <laughs> radio announcers have no clue about what a board is. It's a it's really quite different now. It's just an aspect of uh, the evolution of technology. For years I dreamed about spinning records. You know, I you know, queuing them up and listening to the music. It was awesome. And that board that we had my favorite picture of myself is me sitting at the board and uh, all these knobs and switches on there. And I was a maestro at it. You know, yep. I was I was on I was on the air when the space shuttle exploded and I got a CBS News alert. Oh, I remember I the went, CBS News alerts. My first day, the Pope got shot. You knew it was something serious then. Yeah, it was. Do you remember and, you the know, codes that came down? No. Well, I don't remember what they represented, but I another trick that was played on me, and I think it was a collaboration between the people in our studios and somebody over there at CBS News, but there was a code that would come down that meant stop everything, you know, something cataclysmic has happened, and they would play, and I don't know what the piece is called, but it's something like dun, 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 or something like that. And um, Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was yeah. a joke. That was my initiation. Thank you. Oh, yeah. But then, so when, when uh, Collins Knighton was on before me, and uh-huh. when I took over with the headphones, CBS broke in, and that was the day the um, the Pope was shot. Yeah. So uh, I uh, baptism but, by uh, fire. Well, yeah. And, um, you know, it was just... You know, I knew what the news was. I knew what the sports were. I, uh, uh, I knew the weather. <laughs> we did it all, didn't we? And did commercials. Yes. And did commercials after our shift. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Five well, hours I, of I love spinning. doing commercials. Oh. Well, I did not. <laughs> I did not. And oh, I, I actually got the I'm finger so waved by Larry England that say, if you're going to make it in this business... I I don't know why I did it. Uh, I, I I like PSAs and I like informative information, but you know you get used to it, and then uh, you ride around in the car and you listen to yourself on the radio doing commercials. So it's it, it's a rush. Oh, I, you know I I have special memories of that. I just loved production. I loved being in the studio. I did love production, I was- and I loved the one takes. Uh, for me, and still today, if I can't get it in the first take. All right, I'll do the second take. That's about it because after that, I could hear attitude in my voice. How about that? I started. Uh, I, I think it was Ron Singletary, Ron Walters, called me the the one take wonder because I would get in there, I'd do my spots, and then of course it was always subject to uh, whether or not they would get to air. You have to remember that even in the eighties, and I'm not playing the the female card here or the gender card, but in the eighties, it was still. I don't know what the word, if it would be popular, but it was still acceptable, I guess you would say, to say, I don't want a woman's voice on that commercial. We were told, I don't know if you were told that on NGC, but we were told never play two women artists back to back. So, of course, now that I've got my own uh, abilities to play music, I don't do it because of it, but I guess a little bit of Mm. background influence there. Well, yeah. Yeah, we that was the same thing with our rotation. We had separate bins. We had the we had one bin for the top twenty, a second bin next to it for the bottom twenty, a third bin next to that for male artists, and a separate bin over there for the female artists. And uh, we got our oldies from the albums, and that NGC had the most amazing library of albums that I have ever. Yeah, 45. We had a shelf over there for 45s, and we had the big shelves lining the walls for the, albums. The, but, and the carts? 
David Allen Coe, the bathroom song, six minutes, oh, two seconds. Oh, that's right. I, you know, I was min- just thinking about that the other day. David Allen Coe, uh, six minutes, two seconds. You could actually go yeah. out, grab a bite to eat. That was convenient. But you know what was nice, and only you'd have that at, at a radio station, is uh, we were able to turn the, the, the speaker monitors up in the bathroom. <laughs> so you knew when your song was ending or if it had a skip. Good old days. Uh, you call me on my daughter's first birthday. I, I'll never forget that. I know exactly where I was standing. I, you called me to give me the sad news about David. And yeah. it wasn't very long after he got diagnosed. But, of course, back then, it was all still fairly new. And right, right, right. He didn't it was fit scary, the pro- you know? and, and he didn't fit the profile. So who knew? That affected me deeply. Um, I mean, it was just... It was surreal that there was this disease that he got from a tainted blood transfusion. There was no cure for it. And nowadays, you know, things are different, you know. Clark Broadcasting, it was probably the fondest memories I've had of being in radio. We had a good employer. Best job I've ever had. Best job I've ever had. Best employer. You know, it was absolutely possible to be on opposite ends of an opinion with the person that was signing your paycheck, but yet still feel respected. Right. I remember Mr. Holder came in one day and he was a mentor to me on every level, but he came into the control room one time and I had just run the, his Monday editorial. And he asked me, and he was putting in, I think, something new for the next day. And he asked, because I did middays too with you. And he asked me what I thought about it. And I said, respectfully, Mr. Holder, you don't pay me to give you my opinion. I play your opinion. And I think he thought that was a good answer, but he still wanted it. And the thing I liked about him, because he also introduced me to life in Athens. That is awesome. I've never heard that. A man of profound dignity. And... I want to interject here that Mr. Holder, H. Randolph Holder, was the owner of the station. I don't know if it was called WGAU and WNGC when he bought it, but whatever. Well, NGC sta- didn't come along until well later. I think GAU right. started in the fifties. So maybe that was it. And he came in, uh, took over, and Mary Betts was at at the front desk. And I think the story went that he said that she had a job for life because she had to teach him everything he knew about running a radio station, and she did. Well, yeah, I mean, we just, we were very fortunate in that respect. We were just the kicking this ass station in Northeast Georgia, all around the state, you know. One time I got a call from my mama. She was down in Camilla, which is a good four hours away, four and a half hours away. She said, guess what? I said, what? I can hear you on the radio. Well, I can top that. I used to work, uh, when I moved over to NGC, I was working the midnight to six shift and i would get calls during the night from when the uh what's that game the, the georgia florida game and people were at that Jacksonville. Georgia, yeah 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 they would call me reveling of course and they were listening to wngc in jacksonville that's amazing isn't that amazing be, that tops my cabela story well a little bit just <laughs> geographically not by much but you know and it's it's not it's not consistent, you know. Sometimes atmospheric conditions are perfect for oh, absolutely, absolutely uh, the sustained uh, transmission of the signal. And it was a little more forgiving at night, as I recall, because you could really boost the signal. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. we had a genius yeah. as a first-class engineer, Dan Davis, wasn't that his name? Well, let me tell you the story about that. Uh, yes, Dan and Dan and I are still Facebook friends, but he wasn't the orig- the uh, engineer when I first came on. Now, I'll tell you what, Larry England built WNGC. I don't know what his vision was or anything, but he nailed it. Well, first of all, I was part-time, and then I went to full-time graveyard, you know, 12 to 6. And uh, when I first sat in that chair with that full-time job, I said to myself, I cannot believe anybody would leave a job like this. Let alone that that we're getting paid for it. I know, and you know, and that was that that was the the feeling that just uh, dominated my uh, my experience there. I was just I just had so much fun. And anyway, so Larry came in at six. He was behind me, and uh, as I was leaving one morning, uh, I remarked to him how NGC's signal wasn't as crisp 
as other radio stations I'd listened to. And he stood up, you know, insulted. And after that, the engineer was fired and they hired Dan Davis. And the radio station did pop. You know, and the, the frequency being 95.5, the frequencies on those lower, on the lower end of the, of the dial like that have a better signal. They're worth more than a frequency like 106.1. Part of the reason they sold that radio station for such an unbelievable amount of money was because of that frequency, 95.5. Today, WSB, one of the oldest broadcasting entities. And a clear channel station has bought the frequency. They wound up with the freak 95.5 frequency. So anytime I hear, I'm watching, uh, you know, watch mostly WSB. They put spots on for their AM channel. And they said, you're listening to 95.5. And I'm just, you know, of course that grabs my attention. It's just WSB. And I was like, oh yeah. That was a good move on their part. Right, exactly. Keep smiling until 10 o'clock and the rest of the day will take care of itself. You're listening to Something to Talk About, and we'll be right back after this. This is Island Waves, the voice of Prince Edward Island. You can now take us along with you on Podbean, Spotify, Anchor, and Facebook. Download the free apps and take us along with you every place you go. Listen to us on your phone, your tablets, your watches, your devices, your earpods, or whatever your listening pleasure is. This way you can bring us along with you anytime, day or night, and hear all your favorite shows right here on the Island Waves channel. Island Waves, the voice of Prince Edward Island, with your favorite programs such as Night Moves, Storytime with Nana Anna, Inside the 46th Parallel, The Book Nook, Country Roads, Morning Music, Mid-Morning Musical Melange, Something to Talk About, Jazz Flavors, Polkas and Pudokies, Classical Gas, and much more to come. Tune in to Island Waves for all your favorite programming and take us along with you wherever you go. You can follow us on Podbean, Facebook, Spotify, and Anchor and take us along with you wherever you journey so we can go together. So be sure to tune in and follow Ivan Waves, the voice of Prince Edward Island. And we're back with today's guest, Joel Shiver. An island of blue and a sea of red. Absolutely. Now, I can't say if it's the same when they amalgamated Athens Park County because now that spreads out a little more. But Athens has always been a very progressive, intelligent way of right. life. Yes. It has. It, you know, that's one of the things that um, made it fertile ground for the music scene to rise like it did. B-52s, REM, pylon, drive-by truckers. I remember feeling that I mean, because that was before Athens and Clark County consolidated. So we had news from the Athens City Council 
and the Clark County Board of whatever. Board of you know, Commissioners. It was the Clark County Board, Board of, of Commissioners. Commissioners. Right. So you can report on something some substantive in Athens, but then when you started reporting something about Clark County, it was just this country stuff. <laughs> you know, with, country with, with hog prices. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> remember that. But it was just a distinct difference. But so going back anyway. to the days of WNGC, you were there, and of course during that time you were married. You had your first child. We all did. It was funny because when both of us had our our first sons, it was like the Clark Broadcasting. It was he wasn't just ours. He was a member of the Clark Broadcasting family. In fact, go, in fact, going back to Dan Davis. I can't remember if I was on GAU or NGC, but Dan Davis converted half of his engineering room uh, with a bassinet. But between he and Mr. Holder, they set up a a quasi-nursery. So there were times that on the weekends, specifically, Friday and Saturday, where they would have to bring the baby in to me. So we had this little nursery set up in Dan Davis's engineering room. It was a guess as to whether or not you could hear Philip if he got up and I had to keep him on my knee. I have had to do 3 a.m. news, weather and sports with my mouth poised one way and my knee out the other way, you know, bouncing this little baby and hoping that he didn't talk or or not talk, but cry or whimper and have a Mm -hmm. cart ready to go to a, a commercial or a PSA if he did. Well, I mean, that's just part of the whole experience that we had there. You know, it was just, it was gratifying on so many levels. It was so novel for work experience. You know, I worked all my life, you know, I never, uh, I never had had that experience before. And we were we were tight. We were a tight group. It was idyllic. I felt very well respected. And at one point, I was the only girl on the gang, so to speak. And about that? it was always uh, a very, well, I don't mean the office people. There was Deborah and Georgia and, and Helen, uh, but the on-the-air faculty and or staff, I should say. And it was, it was, uh, it was great. I'm going to tell you something. Your voice is just one of those out there. It's just so wonderful. And I'll tell you something else, too. That's, I mean, it's just cool. I mean, like you are. Well, thank you. Well, I was going to say, let's not forget the fact that you are a very accomplished musician. And I always remember you crafting and making your own banjo, which was a labor of love and took you quite the while to do and you came at the end of uh, at the end of all this you had this beautiful instrument this beautiful banjo oh yeah 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 i still have that banjo Do it's you? still gorgeous. a good friend of mine roy finch i met in law school used to be friends with uh, buddy blackman who was a local banjo picker who went on to uh hee-haw television show in nashville but he was a banjo picker on that and uh, another friend of theirs is Buddy Green, he um, wrote the music to the song, Mary Did You Know, which I think is just, you know, that Gaither guy who wrote the lyrics just, I mean, it was just, it's it's a tight song. I mean, it's a tight song. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk to Joel about what catapulted him from the seat at WNGC to law school. And we will be back with more of Joel Shiver. Yoga East offers all islanders from adults to seniors and chair yoga classes to improve flexibility, quiet your mind, and feed your body and your soul. For more information, contact and support your local yoga guru, Joan Doucette at jonesyoga at gmail.com. And we're back on Something to Talk About with our guest, Joel Scheiber. Glad to be here. 
I am so glad to have you here. And what's really amazing is it sounds like we're just sitting here chatting on my front porch, but in actuality, we're about uh, 3,000 miles away, I think. Uh, that's a long ways. We are I've, a long ways. I can't tell you how many times I've looked at uh, PEI on the map, you know, just just to, you know, assure myself where it was, you know, just to see there and think about you, actually. Well, thank you. I grew up about three hours from Panama City Beach in Florida. So that's where we used to go. But now I live uh, about six hours from Myrtle Beach, uh, about six hours from Savannah. From Antibia Island. Let's get you out of the chair at WNGC, which you uh, very well not only occupy, but own, so to speak. And I do remember going back to the commercials that people, advertisers would actually request and pay more to have Joel Shiver do the spot, cut the spot. Some of it was assigned randomly, and some of it was specific because you had you had clients, not your clients, but you had clients that you just exclusively did their their spots. So yeah, you're, you're uh, living the good life. Uh huh. You are at the height and pinnacle, so to speak, or so we thought of your career. Uh, you were judging shows. You were emceeing shows. Talk about, mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, contacts with musicians. Uh, they were there. You were a celebrity. And at some point... In the 50s, the 80s, I really was. You were. Uh, and, and you still are a star and a celebrity because well, once I, you, know you got out of that chair, you went over to UGA Law School. Yeah. I, you know, I didn't realize that I was a celebrity at the time, but... You know, I save newspaper clippings. Just interject. That's what keeps you humble and honest, Joel. That's what that's what everybody loves about you. You never let it go to your head. Well, all kinds of people were always asking me to do things. I was a pre president of Town and Gown Theater, oh, I remember that. community yes. theater, and boy, we had we had a great, 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 great run. Mr. I was president. in one there. Yeah. Which one was that? Rainmaker played. I played the father, Pop Curry. Was that the movie that Burt Lancaster was in, or am I mixing yes, that up with the John was, Grisham he, book? Yes. There's a John no, Grisham no. book by uh, by that same title, oh, The yes. Rainmaker. It's a totally different totally book. Totally different, about, yeah. It's about lawyering, yes, you know, making money, what, making what John money Grisham fall out of the best. sky. When we last left off, you were at WNGC riding high on the airwaves, judging a plethora of different local contests, some of which earned you a lot of respect and notoriety. You were cutting commercials. You were a great musician, uh, an all-around very sociable and community and civic-minded person. Am I making you, you am I making you gush? Well, like I needed a reminder of how good those days were. <laughs> well, a, a, a good wise man once said, pray your life, son, pray your life. Yeah. So what got you out of the chair of being a radio star, if I may, into law school? What was the bridge that took you there? Well, first of all, when I got the job, I could not imagine anybody having ever vacated that seat behind the board, you know. I was just so excited, and I loved the job for so many years. I loved the job. I loved making personal appearances. You know, I've emceed huge shows with huge stars, you know, and participated in all kinds of stuff. That was such a fun job. But I guess I'm an eight-year kind of guy, you know. After eight years, I was looking for something else to challenge me. Well, there's also what's the what's the path to growth, and you don't look or ever have given me the impression that you're what is it Rolling Stone gathers no moss kind of person. Right. So yeah, I, I've always been curious about that. How you well, had the courage to take that big step forward, Joel? I, I considered a, a PhD in either uh, theology or philosophy or law. And I was between those three things, and I decided that law offered the most opportunities for uh, more employment opportunities, and it would be challenging. So I didn't think I was growing anymore at the radio station, although I repeat it, you know, that was the best job I have ever had in my life. It almost felt like we should be paying them. For... Well, I feel very, very fortunate for that. Uh, very, very fortunate because I took the LSAT 
I got a job, uh, got accepted to Georgia. I got a job at a local Georgia Pacific plywood plant. You know, I was just waiting for school to start in the fall, and I'd never done that. And so that's why I got that job, because I had never done it, and I wanted to get that perspective on life. And, I, and you know, I succeeded at that. Well, I did the, that. The other thing I think it does is by trying out these different things, and I think that's a good time to do it, is try it out. If not anything else, it serves to let you know what you don't want to be doing in life. Well, absolutely. And so, uh, you know, I finally decided on law school. I was looking, I'd only applied to one school, Georgia. I was lucky enough to get in as a top law school. You know, I was like the granddad to all, a lot of those students, you know, had, I had had extensive life experiences. And I think that's one of the things that got me in there is because the law school tries to create a culture of these various experiences. So, you can share them with one another. I was in there amongst, I mean, extraordinarily bright people, even people with PhDs. Even in the class before me, there was a doctor who was like 65 years old in law school. And um, But I was there and all these people who just Zoomed through undergrad, you know, spent a lot of time studying, except for the bright ones. But I'll tell you what. There were people there that just blew me away. They were so, so sharp. And they were such beautiful, beautiful people. It was just a, a wonderful experience for me to go to law school. And that's a three-year and, experience, right? To get, yes, to yes. Even get, yes. Uh, to you can even take the bar. Yeah, and I'll tell you this, too. When I got accepted, I had no idea what kind of law I wanted to practice. During my first year... I learned that there was a clinical program, and it's called the Legal Aid Clinic there in Athens. That's what it was. It was founded in the in the 60s. He started it to give law students the opportunity to work under the supervision of a lawyer in criminal defense. And since then, it was such a big, big hit. You know, all kinds of other clinical programs become like a domestic violence clinical program, you know, uh, and civil clinical programs all. So I enrolled in that for the summer. Now, I intended to get through law school quickly in, you know, two and a half years. Uh, so that meant that I was committed to go, go to school through the summers. Well, we're going to take a short break, and we will be back with more of Joel Shiver here on Island Waves. Here it is. Guernsey Cove Parlor Productions for all your audio and recording needs. See the good folks at Guernsey Cove Parlor Productions by calling 902-962-3204 to book your appointment. Located in beautiful Prince Edward Island. Guernsey Cove Parlor Productions is a six-time nominee of Canada's East Coast Music Association Studio of the Year. Guernsey Cove Parlor Productions is proud to be home of Prince Edward Island's favorite recording studios. Be sure to get in touch with the good folks at Guernsey Cove Parlor Productions located in beautiful Prince Edward Island. Now here's a little sample of what they can do. And we're back with more of Island Waves, and today's guest is Joel Shiver. Glad to have you along with us today, Joel. I'm so pleased to be here. Well, this has really been exciting, fun, and informative. That's you, video Virginia. TV. You are. It was fun. You've always had a big spark. I mean, You've got a big spark plug in you somewhere that's just always always going you know well, thank and you. uh you're yeah kind. That's you. you're kind thank you for that analogy uh, to the serious. spark plug because i'm going to make sure that i get no carbon attached so that my spark will always uh well, ignite 
Apparently, so you're speak. not. Well, I hope so. so I think, it, yeah, I, it may sound vain, but I, I usually have like this daily conversation like, God, don't take me off the earth today. My work's not done and my kids need me. So yeah, that's, that's my a, bargain with broadcasting with, with, aspect. Yeah. That's, that's what you've done with this program. This uh, You've gone worldwide. They can access it on the Internet. Well, it helps you to function locally. I'm not looking for approval or disapproval. I'm just doing it. If you don't want to listen, change the channel. Well, let's go back to the Observer. And so one of those people who called me was Observer TV. I did two things for them. One, like you enterprising uh, young people came up with an idea for a business show interviewing people who ran popular local joints, like Harry Bissett's. Well, it's, it's a saw, huge leap going from audio to audio and visual. I never would have thought that I was somebody they liked or whatever. But fair to say, but you were a had, bit of a mover and a shaker. You were. We had, I don't know how many of us there were, six, seven. I don't know. We sat around this round table. Little round table. Charles Bullock, he was called Chuck. Chuck Bullock would ask questions, you know, and we'd all discuss it. I remember one specific question that he asked was concerning my opinion about the legalization of marijuana. So when Charles Bullock had a conflict and couldn't be there, I was the head of that panel, which, I mean, that's like the Voyager taking a picture of, close-up picture of Pluto, you know, I, I, I still can't believe it. No kidding. So now, while you were doing this, you were with the town and gown, and you had all this notoriety. Were you also, and you were a new dad, were you also simultaneously in law school at this time? I think I started law school in 88, maybe like for the first uh, month or so, I was still president of Town Gown. I had to get out of that because my term ended, and I wasn't interested in doing another term because I knew what Law school was going to be taking my, taking my time. When I was the, when I was in law school, they did have they had a limit, I think, of twenty hours a week of work out work outside uh, outside the law school, and part of that time I spent on WUOGFM. I was on air there, and and that was that was uh, that was fun. That was certainly different from being a country music DJ, you know. It was uh, very gratifying. And then part of the time I worked at the UGA Law Library sitting at the desk. So what got you on the path to, I know you said you worked at legal aid, uh, legal aid offices. What got you on the journey and on the pathway to being a public defender? You know, the legal aid was a clinic offered by the law school that you could take for credit hours to get experience in trial work. Now, as a as a second-year student, you're not allowed to do any hearings or anything like that, but you are allowed to do interviews. And the thing that always struck me was that for that first year I was in the clinic, I went around there with my mouth gaping open because I couldn't figure out how in the world all these people knew where this case was going, what court it was going to. Is it going to municipal court? Is it going to state court? Is it going to uh, a spear court? You know, and what are the processes of getting there? You know, no, no clue, you know. But the beginning of my third year, I had it down. And I always say that, you know, and later I became a lawyer with the clinic. So I was supervising law students. And I always remarked, at them the first time they started, they were going around, all going around with their mouths agape, not being able to figure out what's going on. And then when they came back for the second year, they knew it all. <laughs> they, yeah, they had a much, much better sense of what's going on. And uh, so I do that. My experience then wasn't that particularly unique. But anyway, so I had that was a great job because uh, I, as like I said, the first interview I ever did as a law student over there, I was sitting across the desk from somebody telling me my story, and that, it was just like it was just like a wave went over me of nostalgia. I had found, I, no, I had found my place. I knew oh, what I wanted yes. to do as a lawyer. Oh, now, right. when I graduated from law school, I couldn't get hired over there for whatever reason. So I went to work 
with a firm that did employment discrimination in federal court. I did that for about two and a half years. As a matter of fact, I was in the middle of a trial in federal court in Atlanta when 911 occurred. So we go to lunch, you know, we take a lunch break, and then when we come back, there's all this backlog of people at the metal detector trying to get in. Well, it's because they were, you know, instituting extra procedures to screen people to come in. And that's when I found out about 9-11. The thing that appealed to me about the criminal law, you had a rapid turnover of clients. Federal court, you got married to your clients. And, you know, your case file would be a foot thick. Well, it's more intense and it's slower, and uh, the law is much more complicated. And this was criminal defense, Joel? No, that was uh, civil rights. And, you know, just hearing that sounds like a noble enterprise. And it was indeed a noble enterprise. Never did I not think what I was doing was noble. But I just didn't like getting married to my clients. And plus... I didn't like... Well, you can say you didn't court. like federal court, probably. Well, I didn't like seeing what how my clients had been treated, you know, that would lead them to file this lawsuit. It was just, I mean, it's always there, but for the sake of God, go I, you know? So it was very and, tasking uh, on you personally and taxing on you. Yes. Yes. Yes, yes. Criminal defense was great because I got to poke spears into bad cops. And uh, I enjoyed a tremendous amount of success in jury trials. Let's go back to the machine analogy. You are merely a cog in the machine, and this is your job, to safeguard the rights of your client. And you do that by making sure the state can prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. And I'll tell you what, a lot of times they weren't able to do that. So I'm going to ask you a question. And this is a very broad-stroked question, if you will, so feel free to decline to answer if you want, Joel. Do you think the judicial system is equitably fair? No, 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 no. And how do you Uh, see the definition of inequality? For example, or more likely to be in prison for cocaine, crack cocaine, because it's more affordable for the poor people than white people who are, you know, who are caught with powder cocaine. And it's obvious. I mean, there is such a difference in the number of black prisoners in the country between, as opposed to the number of white people. And the same goes to not to the extent of the black people, but for poor people. You know, it's easy for the bully, the police, who can be bullies. Now, let me, let me qualify this. I have had the absolute privilege of having met police officers who were some of the finest examples of a human being I have ever met. And I'll tell you, there's no end to the comfort that it brings me to realize that. What else was it you asked me about? That I, well, uh, I, I, the leading question was, did you think the judicial system was fair and equitable? And I think we all know that's a rhetorical question because it's not. No, uh, you know, I, I, you know, There's been a lot of brouhaha lately about cash bonds. You know, some jurisdictions want to abolish cash bonds. But because if there's a poor guy in jail on a $100 bail and he has no money to make that and he has nobody in the world to make that, then he has to sit in jail until his case comes to trial. Now, that's a reason for a, a speed trial. But what it amounts to, what it results in, is our jails are seriously, seriously overcrowded. So I think we all agree. And I think we've known for a very long time. And it may have been what was perhaps the underlying motivation for you to get involved with law. Because in our next segment, we're going to talk about your journey and your path from this point down the corridor to the public defender's office and then head of North Georgia Circuit, I believe. And I may be saying that wrong, Joel, you can correct me. All your work on the on the committees and the task force for for ethics and then eventually getting you over to American Samoa as a public defender. So be sure to tune in to part two for more with Joel Shiver on Something to Talk About, right here on Island Waves, the voice of Prince Edward Island.
going to talk about is a door in the floor production in association with Winterlude Studios for Island Waves, the voice of Prince Edward Island. Executive producer and creator Virginia Winter. Research contributions by Brittany Williams, Tracy Law, and Helen Balms. Audio technical and director assistance Brittany Williams. Post production Winterlude Studios, Prince Edward Island. Master Editing, Virginia Winter. The producers would like to acknowledge and thank all of our participants of our series, Something to Talk About, who generously gave their time to be interviewed and share their lives with us. And to Holland College School of Journalism and Mass Communications, particularly to Brittany Williams, Tracy Law, and Helen Baums, and to Lindsay Carroll. Special gratitude of thanks and appreciation to our technical guru and advisor, Dr. Watson Ohms, and to Millie, our loyal canine companion and moral support. Something to Talk About is a door in the floor, Winterlude Studio production made possible with support from Prince Edward Island Senior Secretariat and the Winter Foundation for Island Waves, the voice of Prince Edward Island.